0: Before we begin our study of the Word this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, let's bow our heads together and just go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are so thankful for all that you've given us, all that you've provided for us, and for your Word, that your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Father, we know that It is through your word that we are made mature, that as our Lord prayed, that it is in your word, in your truth, that we are sanctified. It is your truth that sanctifies us, and that truth is what gives us stability. So we read, we study, we reflect upon your word, for that is the means by which you have guaranteed our spiritual growth. So as we study today, encourage us with all that you have done in the past, because that lays the groundwork for all that you will do in the future. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Scripture says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son does not have life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by, the, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even so we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith and not by works, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Open the Word of God this morning to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at the barriers that Christ removed. There are two barriers, if you read carefully through this passage. There are two barriers. And what we should, one thing that we should reflect upon is that the first barrier is a barrier between the Jew and the Gentiles. And this was the barrier of the law. And that Christ removed that barrier. He removed the law so that, as Paul says in Romans, he is the end of the law. But the other barrier is one that affects every human being and that is the the barrier between us between Jew and Gentile together between all mankind and God and that is removed at the cross so we're looking at that this morning and we are down in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 14 now i want to go back and just point out a couple of things i just recited Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. The verse that follows it, verse 10, says, For we are his workmanship. If you remember when we studied that word, poema that is translated workmanship, it has to do with something that is a work of art, something that is of great value, and it is inherently that because God creates it. God is perfect, and therefore that which he creates is perfect. So he is creating something here We are his workmanship in us, we, we who. And I want to remind you that what's so important as we go through Ephesians is that you have these pronouns. We have the you plural, we have the we, and we have the us. Now, it's important to maintain our consistency in understanding these pronouns. When Paul is writing to the Ephesian believers and to those in that region, The you represents you Gentiles. Sometimes the you Gentiles refers to them as unbelievers, what they were before they were saved. Other times it is going to refer to them as Gentiles in reference to to the fact that they have been as Gentiles now united into the body of Christ. The we is a little more difficult to understand The we sometimes refers to we Jews who first were saved and were the beginning of the body of Christ. That is referencing back to the day of Pentecost when you have the apostles and then the preaching of Peter and then thousands were added to the church that day and in the subsequent days. And that's the beginning of the church and they were all Jews up until you get to Acts chapter 10 when Peter is commissioned by God to go to Cornelius and take the gospel officially to the Gentiles. And at that point, the Gentiles are added to the body of Christ. So in, in Ephesians, sometimes at the beginning, uh, Paul speaks of we as we, Jewish background believers, and then he will shift to we as we now, Jew and Gentile together in the body of Christ. For example, even further back in in Ephesians chapter 2, we read in verse 4, "...but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us." The us there refers to Jew and Gentile. Previously he had talked about you, Gentiles, dead in your trespasses and sins, and then among whom also we also, that is we Jews, before we were saved." But now God, with the love with which he loved us, Jew and Gentile, even when uh, we were all dead in trespasses, he made us alive, and then you get the key word, together. The together here refers to Jew and Gentile are now together in one body. The law could not do that. In the Old Testament, in order for a Jew to be able to worship in the temple, he had to become... uh, a full proselyte, which for men involved surgery. So they had to go all of the way. You sometimes read in the scriptures uh, that there were God-fearers like Cornelius. Those were uh, the men who did not go all the way through the surgery. So they could not go all the way into the temple. They were restricted in their access to God. They're saved, but uh, according to the ritual of the law, there, there are... There were these distinctions. But now what Paul is emphasizing is that in the body of Christ, there these distinctions no longer exist. And so Jew and Gentile have uh, both been made alive together. This emphasis on unity. They've been made alive together with Christ. And verse 6, raised up together, that is Jew and Gentile, positionally raised up together, and made to sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So what happens in the church age, starting on the day of Pentecost, is at the instant of salvation, every person who trusts in Christ as Savior is immediately identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. That is called the baptism by the Holy Spirit. You don't feel it. You don't sense it. Uh, you, you don't get tingly. The only way we know about this spiritual transaction is we learn about it in the Word of God, and so we are united together in Christ. That's that's an important background for really grasping all that is being said in this particular chapter, especially the verses that we're looking at uh, this morning. So the together is relates to Jew and Gentile. The we starts to mean we as both Jew and Gentile in Christ. And then verse 8, for by grace you that is you Gentiles have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it's the gift of God not of works lest any man should he's not saying that you you Ephesians but he's writing to them and most of the Ephesians are Gentiles so he's not getting off into issues that relate to uh, particularly Jewish background believers. He is emphasizing that there is now this unity, and the reason he needs to emphasize that is what we studied in verse, verse 11, is that Gentiles were looked down upon and were ridiculed by the haughty Pharisees in their legalism. They had elevated themselves more than God ever intended, thinking that they were really really special and really something because they were heirs of the covenant of Abraham and that that in and of itself would mean that they were saved and that was indicated through the uh, ritual of circumcision and in as we studied in the Pharisaical theology, it's the shed blood of the ritual of circumcision that saved people. And that, of course, was completely wrong. And so Paul reminded them that prior to the church age, they were without Christ, they were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, they didn't participate in those special privileges that God gave to Israel under the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, that they were strangers, that is, they did not participate as Gentiles in the covenants of promises. promise. God did not make a covenant with the Gentiles other than the Noahic covenant, and that they did not have hope and we're without God in the world. And then we have the great contrast here, but now at the beginning of verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, such a important word, our new legal position and identity in Christ. Remember, this is all a corporate concept. We've studied this since Ephesians 1 3, that this is a contrast between the class of Gentiles, the class of Jews, looking at them corporately, looking at Israel corporately, looking at the church corporately. But now in Christ Jesus, that describes those who are corporately as a, as a class, as an entity in Christ, legally identified with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And we saw that as an idiom, literally meaning by the death of of Christ that's the work so we'll come back to that concept when we get down to down into this passage in verse 16 where it says that he might reconcile them both who's the them the them is Jew and Gentile both is Jew and Gentile so that's going to be important we'll hit that again reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross okay so this is what happens at salvation now Let's look at these three three important verses. For he himself is our peace. I talked about this last week. He himself is our, our peace. Jesus Christ in, uh, as the Messiah is the Prince of Peace. He is the one who comes to bring peace with God. Peace, I talked about the different meanings of the word, although at times it refers to the absence of violence or the absence of physical conflict. Primarily, it refers to this peace with God between sinners and God because of what Christ did on the cross. And it also refers to inner peace an inner tranquility and contentment that is ours when we are resting, trusting in our rock, trusting in the word of God and Christ. He himself is our peace who has made both one. Now, who are the both? I'm really going to belabor this this morning, so just relax. It's kind of like learning land seed and blessing when we study the Abrahamic covenant. I want you to be able to say it in your sleep. Who made both one? Who are the both? Jew and Gentile. Now they're no longer separate entities, that is, those who are believers. They are now one. There's an emphasis here on unity. I'm going to bring out some things about this unity here that you probably haven't heard before. I haven't taught it before, and I haven't heard anyone else who has taught it, but it's right here in the passage, and and it's contextual, and I keep emphasizing the importance of context. He's made both one, so he's laying this groundwork for unity. Unity is a big idea at the beginning of chapter 4. We have to understand what this unity means. It's not that what we've learned before is not right. It is that it's the unity here is specifically influenced by the unity that it brought about between Jew and Gentile. That's its primary context. So that will help us understand that he's made both one. He has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. What is the enmity? It's an important word. Notice that it is used here. He abolished in his flesh the enmity. And then at the end of verse 16, it says, putting to death the enmity. So abolishing the enmity equals putting to death the enmity. And what's the enmity? The enmity is then explained in this uh, next clause, the law of commandments contained in ordinances. That refers to the Mosaic law. What was for the Jew the symbol of submission to the Mosaic law? It was circumcision. That was back in verse, verse 11. So this enmity is the law, but it is exemplified by circumcision. So, And the purpose for this, so as to express his purpose, so as to do two things— we're going to see this to create here and to reconcile in verse sixteen, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. Now I want you to notice this. It's verse fourteen starts with the primary statement of this, of these three three verses of this sentence. For he himself is our peace. And at the end of verse 15, it says, thus making peace. Now, what does that tell us? When we look at something like this, where we have a a statement saying one thing at the beginning and and repeating the verbiage a little bit later on, we know that it's bracketing so that everything in in between is talking about the same thing. The reason I bring that out is when we read the phrase, for he himself is our peace, what's the first thing that came to your mind? Peace with God. Is this talking about peace with God? No, because if you look between the two statements about peace, he's not talking about peace with God. He's talking about peace between Jew and Gentile. That's really important to recognize. In fact, I was reading... Uh, one very well-known commentary today written by the head of the Greek department. He's since gone to be with the Lord. And he makes the statement at the beginning of this section. He says, it's very difficult to determine when we first read verse, verse 14 whether this is talking about peace with God or peace between men. And he, he comes down on the peace between Jew and Gentile, but he missed the observation that I just made. It's bracketed here so that the peace is described as making both one as removing the middle wall of separation abolishing the enmity creating in himself one new man from the two by by creating one new man from the two in himself he made peace that's how he made peace okay so now I'm going to break this down further. This is an extremely complex sentence, but the thoughts and this and the relationship of the thoughts in th- these three verses is critical. He starts off telling us what Christ did in verse 14. First, he himself is our peace. That is the topical sentence, the topical clause, let's say. Then he has to say a few things to elaborate on that statement first he wants to say what he did he referring to the Lord Jesus Christ he made both one and notice the conjunction there and means that that it puts these two together as two equal actions one he made both one two he broke down the middle wall of separation this is done when? At the cross. So verse 14 tells us what Christ did. He made us both one. He broke down the wall of separation. Second, verse 15 tells us how he did it. The first part of verse 15 tells us how he did it. We have, uh, it's usually expressed uh, in, in the English by having abolished in his flesh. It emphasizes that this happened in the past, and it expresses it with the past tense, abolished, which is all good. But it's a participle of means. There's about 10 or 12 different ways a participle modifies a verb. It's not clearly stated. It's not objective. It could have been causal. It could have been uh, maybe time. Some One translation translates it, when. And which is very much expresses the truth, when did he make us both one and broke down break down the middle wall of separation? He did it when he abolished in his flesh the enmity, but I think the sense here is more means it's how he did it, how did he make us both one? How did he break down the wall of separation? He did it by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, and then enmity is defined so that that so uh, excuse me that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so those two terms always refer, refer back to the mosaic law now why did he do it that's the third point why did he do it he did it for two reasons and this is expressed by the grammar in the greek and it's obfuscated that means it's made cloudy difficult to understand by the english translation so I used italics to express these two purpose clauses he why did he do it first that he might create and then second the verse goes the verse number breaks up the thought so that's what where we miss it so that he might create and second that he might reconcile that's the two why's why did he do this First, so that he might create in himself one new man. Now, anybody see an important word in that phrase? It's the word create. That takes us back. This is why I started and reminded you of verse 10, where it says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. And down here we read that that being created in Christ Jesus is related to creating in himself this one new man. That's part of this masterpiece that Christ creates back in verse 10. Now, the reason I'm stressing this is because this is so overlooked today. What this does is it's taking you and me, it's taking every believer that we know together and every believer since the day of of, of Pentecost, and is elevating us to a position that is far superior to any believer prior to that time. It's the church. It's the body of Christ. It is this new organism that God created in on the day of Pentecost. And it, it's a masterpiece. And this masterpiece is composed of a unified of a unification of believers of Jew and Gentile together in this one body. so the first thing that happens is he there's this creation in himself of one new man from the two. Now I'll come back to that phrase a little bit later. What's the last line? Thus making peace. it's a result participle. With the result that peace is made. So that closes out the bracketing of what's covered in 14 and 15. It's by his death, and by his death, it's, and his death is for the purpose of creating in himself one new man from the two. But he did a second thing, he had a second purpose, and that is that he might reconcile. So this brings in the doctrine of reconciliation. That reconciliation is not just between us and God. And remember, we're always reconciled to God. God is not reconciled to us. You know, in arrogance, most people want God to conform to us and give us permission to do what we want. But Christ at the cross reconciled us. We were the ones who were out of line, reconciled us to God. But here we have that reconciliation here isn't between us us and god isn't between jew and gentile and god it is that he might reconcile them them both who who's the them both jew and gentile that he might reconcile them both to god in one body that is the present church this is foundational for understanding what a what the church is And why a church is important is because a local church is a manifestation of the body of Christ, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, what, through the cross, which is parallel to uh, through his blood, back in verse uh, 13. Through the cross, thereby, or with the result that, he put to death the enmity, now, all of that is just, just comes out of examining the basic structure of his thought. And that's so important today. That's why we have to learn to think logically. Logic is expressed through grammar. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands how many people don't like grammar. Grammar is so important. Grammar is almost as, impo- as important as history for understanding the Bible. So let's now break this down a little bit. For we as I said last time, for he himself is our peace that's our topical sentence that's the main clause. He himself is a structure in the Greek language emphasizing that it is Christ. it is Christ himself it is this it is his uniqueness that establishes our peace. I talked about peace last time and in context here the peace at this point between 14 to 16 is making the both one there's peace between Jew and Gentile he has made both one now we're going to have to deal with a little grammar here because grammar really brings out some important things it, it the 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 word for making is the Greek word poieo, which simply means to make, but it's an aorist active participle. The aorist tense means it happened in the past. Well, when in the past? It happened at the cross. So that's where where the transaction, where this took place. He made, who has made them both one. And we have this word both, which is the Greek word amphitera. But it has an article. Now the article is very important uh, with it. It made the both one, so it's identifying the both that we've been talking about. But with as it's an adjective, it can be masculine, it can be feminine, or it can be it can be neuter. It's neuter here. Now that's really important. We're going to find the word both two more times. In verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God. But in verse 16, it's masculine. And in verse 18, it says, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. That's masculine. Why is it neuter here? It is neuter here because it is referring to the classes of Jew and Gentile, that these classes of people are now brought together as believers in Christ. It is not talking about reconciliation between human beings and God. That's what comes to play in verse 16, because reconciling them both, that's human beings, That's that's why it has to be masculine. To God, God is also masculine. So the both has to be a masculine uh, gender here in verse 16 because it's not talking about classes of people anymore. It's talking about human beings and God, and it's more personal. Same thing in verse 18. So just a shift by that adjective brings out an important distinction between what's being talked about first a reconciliation between two classes of people in christ and then the then the second is reconciliation between uh, humanity and god so he has made both one in verse 14 and then the second thing that he does is he has broken down the middle wall of separation now, what, what's important to recognize here is both ma- the verb made, he has made, and he has broken are both participles. They're both identical in their grammatical uh, breakdown. So he's saying he did two things. He made both one, and second, he broke down the middle wall of separation. So those are these two things. Now, what in the world is the middle wall of separation? Well first of all we have to understand the word uh to the word ab- uh, abolished that comes up in verse 15 because it says he's broken down the middle wall of separation by having abolished or by abolishing in his flesh the enmity that's how he broke down the middle wall of separation and this is an important word in the Greek it's the same word used back in 1 Corinthians 13 um in verses 9 and 10 where it talks about uh, gifts of prophecy will be abolished and gifts of wisdom will be abolished. It means that something is completely nullified, it is abolished, it's completely done away with. And so here it emphasizes that this wall of separation between Jew and Gentile is obliterated, it's nullified, it doesn't exist anymore. It has no role in the current dispensation. And it is further defined in verse fifteen as the enmity, the broke he has broken down the middle wall of separation by abolishing in his flesh, that is on the cross, when he bore in his own body on the tree our sins, the enmity. So the enmity equals that middle wall of separation which is then defined as the law of commandments contained in the ordinances. And then in verse 16, he'll repeat the word, the enmity, saying that this results in putting to death the enmity. First thing this means and tells us is that the Mosaic law is now nullified. It was, in fact, it was only for Israel. No Gentile in the Old Testament was ever held accountable by God for the observance of the Mosaic Law. It was never intended for Gentiles. It was only intended for Israel because they were God's chosen people, a chosen nation for a specific purpose. It had no relevance whatsoever to any Gentile. Has no relevance, according to this passage, no relevance for any church age believer. Because that middle wall of separation, the law of commandments and ordinances, is abolished. It's over with. We are not under the law anymore. Well, does that mean that we can just do whatever we want to do? No, because there are still standards and absolutes and commands in the New Testament that express God's standards for the life of a believer. We are held to a higher standard as believers in Christ than anyone else. So there are things that people can do that are perhaps legal but as believers they they don't cut it they are not part of the standards for the body of Christ so the law is canceled but that doesn't mean we're lawless there's the law of Christ the law of love there are new standards that are given in in the new testament now this wall of separation was illustrated by a physical wall in the temple so i have a couple two or three slides here showing you what the temple was like and this is from i believe the holman christian standard bible uh, study bible and you have uh, you know this is herod's temple So you have along this lower left side, you have Solomon's Portico, which is where the money changers were. Over here on the west side, you can see one of the entrances into the courtyard uh, that came across. If you've been to Israel, this is just to the, uh, this is like Wilson's Arch here, and this is just to the north of the uh, western wall, which was the retaining wall on this side of the temple. So you would enter into this courtyard and on the, the, and you notice there's a outer wall here. That's not the significant one. And you would have to go through the gatekeeper. Just to make sure that you're who you are, what your identity is, you're bringing a sacrifice to make sure you are, you have washed out in the mikveh on the southern steps and that you are cleansed and you're ritually prepared to go in to worship God. And then you go into the first courtyard, and that's the court of the Gentiles. This uh, low wall here, which is about four and a half feet high. Was called the Sorek, and the Sorek was designed to prevent the uh, Israel, uh, the Gentiles from entering into the main part of the uh, main part of the temple. And there are two signs, two Greek inscriptions that have been uh, discovered archaeologically. The first was found in 1871, and it's about two feet high, and about um, three feet wide. And it's now in the Archaeological Museum in Istanbul, and the inscription reads, Let no foreigner enter within the partition and enclosure surrounding the temple. There's another inscription that has been discovered. It was discovered in 1935, and it's now located at the Rockefeller Museum in Jerusalem. So there, there's a warning that were these signs all around the temple prohibiting a Gentile from going any further. This is another picture from Logos Bible Software, how they have depicted this, the temple, but on the outside you see this low uh, wall. This is the sorek that marks off the Gentiles. Uh, women, Jewish women and men could go beyond that. Uh, This outer courtyard here is the courtyard of the women, and so only the men could go beyond that into the uh, priest's courtyard where they would bring the sacrifices for the family. Here's another uh, diagram showing that same uh, wall, the sorek. That's not the wall of separation that Paul's talking about, but it illustrated that that this its purpose was to prevent Gentiles from coming in because they could only go so far. The law separated them uh, from Israel. So we go back to verse 15, and in this slide what I'm showing you is uh, two translations that back up what I've been saying. The ESV says, translates that first abolishing as a, Uh, participle of means by abolishing the law of commandments to do two things, that he might create and that he might reconcile us both to God. The second example comes from the NET. They take the, uh, the participle as a participle of time when he nullified, that is at the cross, when he nullified. And notice how they express the purpose or the result. He did this to create in himself one new man and to reconcile them both in one body uh, to God through the cross so these two purposes answer our question of why so we looked at what Jesus did at the beginning what he did was he made peace and he broke down the wall of separation then we looked at uh, how he did it he did it by abolishing the enmity in his flesh that is uh, the law of commandments and why did he do it answered again by uh, two uh, purpose clauses here so as or for the purpose of creating in himself one new man from the two and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity so there's one other thing here we need to look at this is the phrase, the new man. What happens is he's creating in himself one new man. This is the first time we see in Ephesians this terminology. So I want to remind you of something that I've said several times, that the first three chapters describe the wealth of the believer. This is foundational to understand the walk. First, Paul tells us, what we have in Christ. Then he tells us what difference that's supposed to make or how we are to live. And then the third thing, starting in Ephesians 10, is going to be the warfare. Now, what's interesting is when you read through Ephesians, there's a lot of terms and phrases that are used in the first three chapters that must be understood contextually in those chapters because they're going to be used again in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And they're used the same way. We're not going to change our meaning from what we establish in the first three chapters to what's in the next part. It's, Paul is very logical in this. So what is the new man? A lot of times we will read this and we think regeneration. Mm, wrong. He's creating from what? In himself, one new man from the two, from Jew and Gentile. That's not regeneration. Okay? it's The new man is what? The new man is, is the body of Christ. The new man is this new entity that is in Christ. The new man is the body of Christ. The new man is not an individual, it is a corporate idea. How many times have I said the word corporate in the last year and a half since we've been in here? We, 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 us, 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 it's all corporate. We're in the body of Christ. So the new man is the new entity, the new man is the body of Christ. Now let's look at how this is used in a couple of other places. I'm not going to go through all of them we will get to this when we get to Ephesians 4 but I'm just giving you a little preview of coming attractions here Colossians 3, 9-11 through 11 uses this the exact same way, it says do not lie to one another why? since you have put off the old man with his deeds now there was a time it may be in the Scofield reference Bible when people took the old man as the sin nature and taking this positionally that you put off the sin nature well I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I always know the answer. How many of you all are sinners? We all still have a sin nature. We haven't put it off. We haven't taken it off. The word indicates the removal of clothing. Okay? We haven't removed the sin nature. The old man is not the sin nature. The old man is what we were, who we were, our identity before we were saved. And Paul puts it in the past tense here. Since you have put off this is what what has happened we all put off the old man and I've taught this you can go back and listen to the tapes I did the messages I did in Romans 6-8 through on sanctification about 1998 or 99 up in Preston City the old man is everything we were before we were saved you have put off the old man with his deeds and you have put on the new man Now, what I taught before was the new man is all that we are in Christ. That's true. But what I've discovered from looking at the use of the new man here in Ephesians 2.15 is this new man we've put on is the body of Christ, our identity as a church-age believer. It is more than just all that we were or all that we are now in Christ. It is that, but it is talking about what we are as church-age believers. That's our new identity in Christ. That is what should inform every thought, deed, and action now that we are believers. We have put on the new man. Now, the that's positional. And the experiential is the next word, have renewed and are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. So, if you, we've done this before, I'm going to do it real fast. Adam is created in the image and likeness of God. Adam sins. The image and likeness doesn't go away. It is now corrupted so that Genesis 5, 2, and 3, uh, Adam has sons and daughters and they're in the image of Adam. But that doesn't mean the image of God has gone away because when you get to Genesis 9, 6, and God says in the Noahic covenant he who sheds man's blood or commits murder shall by man have his blood shed that's capital punishment because he has shed the blood of someone in the image of God so we're still in the image of God but what do you get in the new testament Romans 8:28 to 30 we are being conformed to the image of Christ so in regeneration that corruption that is ours, that we inherited from Adam through the sin nature, is going to be partially dealt with. It's not eradicated, but it is dealt with through sanctification because God is working to conform us by the renewing of our mind, studying the Word of God, exchanging, or not being conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that is the experience of our spiritual growth according to the image of the one who created them, which is God. So we're going back that, that there is a reversal. I think for a lot of us it's minute. For others it's minute squared. For others it's a little bit more than that. I don't know how much, but we still have a sin nature and we still struggle with that sin nature. Now, look at what else Paul says here. It's renewed in the knowledge according to the image of him who created them. Where did he create them? There's that word again. Where did we see it? We saw it in Romans, I mean, excuse me, Ephesians 2.10. We saw it in Ephesians 2.15, that the new man is created in himself. Okay, here it says, according to the image of him who created them. him, where there is. Where did he create us? In Christ, that's Ephesians 2.15, in Himself, where there is neither Jew nor Greek, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all in all. Here's the question. Where do you find that similar phraseology? You find it in passages like Galatians 3:24 and 25 talking about we have been baptized or identified into Christ so there is no longer Jew or Greek, male or female, bond or slave. This is our new identity in Christ. It doesn't mean there are no more women or men, males or females, that there are no longer role distinctions. There certainly are, but under the law, Where there was a separation between Jew and Gentile. Gentiles couldn't get into the temple. Women could only go as far as the courtyard of the women. Men could only get into the area just outside the holy place. Only priests could go into the Holy of Holies and only the high priest could go into the, excuse me, the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. But now, in Christ, in our new identity, identified with Him through the baptism by the Spirit that places us in Christ, identifying us with His death, burial, and resurrection, that whether you're Jew or Gentile, because together you've been made one, whether you're male or female, bond or slave, you have access to God. And what's Paul going to say when we get down to verse 18 of Ephesians 2? For through him we both have access to, by one spirit to the Father. That did not happen in the Old Testament. But that's our new identity in Christ. So Colossians 3, 9 through 11 fits this. Now, we'll go to Ephesians 4 in the future, but I'll just mention it right now. Let me look at one other thing in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4 starts the application process based on the first three chapters. Starts off Ephesians 4, 1. Therefore, okay, what's he saying? I'm going to draw a conclusion. We're going to look at the inferences of everything that I've said in the first three chapters. Now we're going to see what it means. Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord... Be, um Beseech you, I, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are called. Now, the rest of 4 through 6 is going to explain that. And then he says that you are to, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's not just with one another as believers, it's Jew and Gentile bearing with one another in love. Remember, unity is defined back in Ephesians 2. 14 through 18 so you're you're not just the bearing with one another in love but specifically contextually one another is Jew and Gentile the the middle wall of separation's gone the enmity is removed endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace that's true for every believer Gentile and Gentile but specifically in the contents, its a context he said this is especially true now that we have this Unity, this one body in the church, for there is one body. Jew and Gentile are now one body. That's the first thing he says here. And one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, for Jew and Gentile alike, because they are now one in the body of Christ. Now we skip down to verse 21 or 22. Paul says that you put off. Now that's often taken as a command that you should put off, or you, that you ought to put off. But that's not what it says. It's an it's an infinitive. It's an aorist infinitive. It's that you have put off. Just like in in um, Colossians, you have put off concerning your former conduct, the old man. That's all that you were before you were saved. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts and be renewed that's the same language as colossians through growing this is your experiential growth by the spirit in, in the spirit of your mind rather and that you put on and there it's like that you should put on no it's also an aorist infinitive it means that you have put on the new man which was created every time we see this new man he is a special creation of god it's not regeneration because it all goes back to Ephesians 2.15, he created in himself one new man from the two. It's not regeneration, it's the church. This ought to blow our minds. People who are Christians and have what they call a low self-image are saying none of this is true. They're still getting their identity from the world and their identity from their old man who is dead and gone. Our identity in Christ is incredible. Other passages talk about we we have royalty as members of the body of Christ. We are elevated above every other believer. We have been given privileges and blessings beyond any believer of any other dispensation. This ought to blow our minds. It ought to change how we think about everything in our life because we are not who we think we are we are what god says we are and we are adopted into his royal family and we have been given a unique a unique blessing so the result of all this is given then in ephesians 2:17 and he came and preached it means christ came after the resurrection and proclaimed not preached That has a totally different nuance. The word keruso, the verb, is to proclaim peace. The peace between Jew and Gentile. To you who are far off, that's the Gentile, and to those who were near. For through him, that is through his death on the cross, through the blood of Christ, we both, who's the both? We both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. To get the point across, I would say have equal access by one spirit to the Father. Now, I charted this out, graphed it out. So the first barrier, you have the Gentiles on one side, but they're separated from by the law from Jews. That's the first barrier. But that barrier, the first barrier is removed through his blood by the death of Christ, by the cross. Then there's a second barrier which is the sin barrier that separates Gentile and Jew from God. But the sin barrier is removed by Christ. It is gone. So that the issue now isn't what have you done. It isn't what sins have you committed. The issue is what do you think about Christ? Because he paid the penalty for sin. The sin barrier is removed so that the issue is faith In Christ, to make it simple, I modified the barrier, three issues that separate us from God. First, there's a legal penalty of sin. Every person is under that legal penalty of death. Christ paid that penalty for everyone. So penalty of sin is taken care of by the cross. But we have two other problems. We lack righteousness and we lack life. Now, Christ paid the penalty for sin, but that doesn't mean everyone is saved. It just means everyone had the sin penalty taken care of. How do you get righteousness? The same way Abraham did in Genesis uh, chapter uh, 13, uh, 14, excuse me, Genesis 15, verse 6. God imputed righteousness to Abraham and declared him just by faith. We are justified by faith. That's the illustration Paul uses in Romans chapter 4. How do we get life? When we get life, when we trust in Christ, God gives us life again and again and again. That's the message Jesus has in the Gospel of John. So the penalty of sin is paid for by Christ, but it doesn't automatically saves us. When we trust in Christ, that's our responsibility, then the righteousness becomes perfect righteousness because we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and de- declared just by God, and we're given his life. And that life is life eternal. Jesus said, I came not to steal and destroy like a thief, but to give life, that's eternal life at faith in Christ, And to give it abundantly, that's what we realize when we grow spiritually. These are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you will have life in his name. So it is the cross that removes the barrier between man and God, and the issue then is just faith in Christ with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word, being able to see how different passages correlate and reinforce the message of other passages. We thank you for this new identity that we have as believers in Christ that there is no longer Jew or Gentile. There's no longer that division, that distinction, that animosity, that enmity, but we are now one in Christ. The two both have become one. And, Father, that this is due to the work of Christ on the cross, what he has accomplished in establishing this fabulous new entity called the church. And this is why it's important to be involved in a local church, Or maybe extended due to other circumstances, but that we are involved as part of that body because it's the localized expression of this body of Christ that is so remarkable. For those who have never trusted Christ as Savior, let me reiterate that it is very simple. It is simply to believe Christ died on the cross for your sins, to trust in him, to rely upon him and him alone for your salvation. For there is salvation in no other. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. That is the only way. Father, we thank you for all that we've learned. May we be challenged to think differently about who we are and our walk with you and our purpose in life as a result of this. In Christ's name, amen.